Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. A stunning defamation award to advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. After only three hours of deliberations on Friday, a Manhattan jury decided that Donald Trump must pay Carroll $83.3 million for defaming her when he denied he sexually assaulted her. The 80-year-old Carroll clutched her lawyer's hands and smiled as the jury delivered its verdict. Trump was not in the courtroom for the verdict. Absolutely ridiculous, he said in a statement shortly afterwards, vowing to appeal. The award includes $18.3 million in compensation for harm caused to Carroll's reputation, plus a whopping $65 million in punitive damages. Those are damages intended to punish Trump and deter him from engaging in defamation in the future. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who's been covering the trial, to former Elle magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll for defaming her by denying he sexually abused her. The award consists of $18.3 million in compensation for harm caused to Carroll's reputation, plus $65 million in punitive damages. Those are damages designed to punish the defendant. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado, who covered the trial. What did Jean Carroll ask for, and how does this verdict compare? Well, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers had asked for at least $24 million, $12 million in compensatory damages for having her reputation hurt and defamation that happened when Trump accused her of being a liar, and then additional reputational repair of $12 million, in addition to unspecified punitive damages to get Donald Trump from continuing to defame her. Her lawyer said that Trump even continued to defame her as he left the courthouse each day after the trial. In the end, it was a staggering $83.3 million, $7.3 million for nominal damages for being defamed, $11 million for a reputational repair, to repair her reputation, and an additional $65 million for punitive damages to get Donald Trump to stop. And during closing arguments in the morning, Carol's attorney, Roberta Kaplan, had asked for, quote, an unusually high punitive award, arguing that's what was needed to get him to stop defaming Carol. Yeah, she was basically saying that Trump believes he's above the rule of law, that the law doesn't apply to him. And he started getting, you know, increasingly angry at listening to himself being described this way. And then she said that, you know, this has to stop now. She said he was leaving court and tweeting and putting on true social things about Jean Carroll that were also defamatory. 
She said it's defamation of a woman by a man who believes he can do anything he wants. And he stormed out of the courtroom at almost the very start of her closing arguments? Yeah, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer was minutes into her closing argument, and he didn't like what he was hearing, and he stormed out. And uh, we did see pretty contemporaneously, shortly thereafter, Donald Trump started posting critical things about the judge in the case on Truth Social. And some of them were, you know, very angry and furious. So um, we can assume that he probably went into one of the side rooms in the courthouse and started posting on Truth Social. And he only came back to the courtroom to hear a closing argument by his lawyer, Alina Haba, about 45 minutes later. So Alina Haba, even before the closing arguments, got into a tangle with the judge again. The judge took the bench and uh, Carol's lawyers were seated at the table and there was no one at the defense table. And the judge got visibly angry that time was passing and there was a jury waiting and court was supposed to start at 930 and it was about 945 and there was still no defendant or his lawyers. So the judge said, let the record reflect that there's no defense team. And then Alina Haba walked in without Trump. And then he said, is your client going to join us? And basically, she said, well, he's almost going to join. You know, to make a, ju- a federal judge and a jury wait like that is pretty extraordinary. And then Trump came in in his own time. So he came in a few minutes later. So that started it. And then she started arguing. The judge had made preliminary rulings disallowing certain evidence and emails to be put in that were extraneous and not part of the Trump case. And some of them were derogatory and they were sent by other people. And the judge said this, this is out of bounds. Alina's partner tried to enter it into evidence today after entering of evidence had closed. You don't do that when you're starting to do closing arguments on the day of closing arguments. The judge reminded him that that was improper. And then Alina interrupted the judge and started arguing with him and re- trying to litigate it and claimed she was going to create a record for appeal. And then the judge basically warned her that if she didn't stop it, he was going to put her in the lockup. So she better watch it. So it started out that way. I said when we talked about the New York fraud trial that that was the craziest courtroom, but I don't know now. We've seen now that by putting on guardrails that the judge did, Trump was extraordinarily restrictive in what he could say. And that's what prompted him to leave saying, this is not America. Obviously, that he didn't feel he got to have a say. You could argue that what Trump did to Judge Angoron two weeks ago in closing arguments and delivering his own closing arguments was he hoodwinked the judge and then launched into what he wanted to say. So there's not as much of a free-for-all. It's not as free-range as Trump was able to do in state court. There's much more laws, and Judge Kaplan is more of a taskmaster, and he just wasn't going to let Trump get away with it, and we've kind of seen what happened. Let's talk about Alina Haba, Trump's lawyer's closing argument, because she showed the jury a video in which Trump said that the jury's verdict last year was a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time, and then she said, you know why he has not wavered? Because it's the truth. And that prompted the judge to interrupt. That also incurred the judge's ire, because The judge had already made a finding. The jury last year found that Trump sexually assaulted her. Judge Kaplan said he found that now that Trump had defamed her by claiming she was a liar and that she had made the story up and that it was a quote-unquote hoax. 
he said that earlier in September that Trump was no longer allowed to claim that this never happened and that he was just defending himself. And that's what basically Alina Hobbit said, that he's remained consistent, that he's only defending himself. And she also claims in this country, you have a right to speak, a constitutional right to speak. But then Kaplan interrupted her and says, you have a constitutional right to some kinds of speech, but not others. Basically, you can't make false claims, which is what he was suggesting Hoppe was doing in the courtroom by trying to create this alternate universe and this alternate reality where Trump was innocent. And usually judges don't interrupt closing arguments unless it's something very important. Well, also, most lawyers know they follow the rules. I mean, you're practicing in court. It's very specified. And if there were pretrial rulings that you're not allowed to go beyond, if you're only allowed to talk about A and B but not mention Z and H and J, you're not allowed to. And most lawyers follow those rules the findings and the conclusions that the judge has made. Alina seemed to be interested in maybe her client wanted her to say these things. So she was going to say them and say it was because she was trying to create a record. Because as you say, Donald Trump was frustrated on Thursday by the way the judge limited his testimony so severely. Tell us a little more about that. Donald Trump was on the stand, an unbelievably brief four minutes at most. Unlike the four hours he spent railing at the system in the New York State civil fraud trial in November when he testified, the judge took great pains to strictly limit what Trump was allowed to say. And he made Trump's lawyer, Alina Hava, answer specifically what was the question she was going to ask him and what was the answer Trump was going to get. So the judge wanted to put the guardrails out there and no strain off of reservation on this one. Don't go off on the off-ramp. You're not allowed. I'm sure Trump's performance in the courtroom did not endear him to the jury. It certainly didn't endear him to the judge. But I'm curious as to how the jury came up with that number, 63 million impunitives. We don't know how the jury arrived upon it. And as the judge excused them and said they could go home now, he said they were free to talk about it if they felt like it. And they were anonymous. We don't have any of their identities and know about them. And they were escorted to and from the courthouse under guard of the United States deputy marshal. But he told them he would advise them never to tell anyone that they were part of this jury. I mean, we've all heard judges in high-profile trials tell the jury that they can talk to the press, but they don't have to talk to the press, but never warning the jury, don't ever say that you were on this jury. That's stunning. Well, I mean, if you could think about what has happened to people that have had anything to do with these Trump cases, they're victims and the subject of lots of vitriol and lots of attacks on social media. So if they come forward and say, hey, I was a juror on Trump, you know, they can find themselves getting possible threats from Trump supporters. Patty, you've sat through all the New York trials involving Trump. So what can we take away from this? I mean, in the civil fraud trial in November, we saw an entire trial where Donald Trump behaved extraordinarily for a defendant, having press conferences right outside the courtroom door, deriding and slamming the judge and the the New York attorney general and saying anything he felt like, you know, What we've seen in this latest trial is this trial lawyer for E. Jean Carroll asked the jury to basically hold him accountable for what he's been getting away with all this time. 
And this jury, this is possibly, you could say this is the first reckoning of Trump, that he's had to now pay the price for what he's claimed. Thanks so much, Patty, for taking us inside the courtroom. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show... The Supreme Court is stepping into Starbucks' fight with the unions. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We don't Thousands of Starbucks workers at hundreds of stores across the country went on strike for one day last November to protest their union's lack of a first contract with the coffee chain, despite a nearly two-year organizing drive. We are really fighting to come to the bargaining table, and regardless of what Starbucks is advertising, they are not true to their word. The union, Starbucks Workers United, won its first representation at the company in December of 2021 at a store in Buffalo, New York. Since then, it has won votes at more than 360 stores, but the union and Starbucks have yet to agree on a labor contract for any of the more than 9,000 union members. Tom Erickson is president of Teamsters Local 120. At the end of the day, these workers want to be represented, and, and they Starbucks should do the right thing, come to the table and support them. Union members have filed hundreds of complaints with the National Labor Relations Board, accusing Starbucks of breaking the law in its efforts to fight off unionization. And now the Supreme Court has agreed to hear Starbucks' case over a judge ordering the company to reinstate workers who were fired at a store in Memphis during a union campaign. Joining me is labor law expert Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. Would you say that Starbucks has become sort of the face of the fight by management against unionization, or are other companies doing the same? 
Starbucks has been fighting unionization really intensely and has been both exploiting all of the opportunities in the law to fight unions, but has also violated the law in many different ways. But they're not alone. We also see that kind of resistance to unions occurring now by what was formerly known as Twitter, also SpaceX, the Elon Musk companies, by REI, by Amazon. So I don't think Starbucks is alone, but it certainly is really following textbook anti-union strategies. Yeah, I saw that it's facing more than 700 complaints before the NLRB for everything from firing union supporters, spying on workers, closing stores during labor campaigns. So this comes from the top, I take it? It's not the individual stores that are deciding this. Right. This kind of labor policy is almost always at a national level. There might be occasional times where a manager goes rogue, but this kind of comprehensive anti-worker campaign is national labor policy for the company. Tell us what happened in this case. The case that the Supreme Court just granted involved seven workers who worked at a Starbucks cafe in Memphis, and they sought to organize a union, and the company fired them. They allege because of their efforts to organize the union, they had recently appeared on local TV talking about the union campaign, so there was no question that they were involved with it. Notably, Starbucks denied wrongdoing, but it did end up hiring the workers back. But in any event, in the meantime, the NLRB sought an injunction to get them reinstated. Frequently, when workers are fired for organizing unions, it can take many, many years for them to get their jobs back. Here, because the evidence was so overwhelming that Starbucks had violated the law, the board sought an injunction in court so that the workers would be reinstated while the legal appeals proceeded. And so the question is the standard that the judge used and the Sixth Circuit approved of for granting the preliminary injunction, is that the issue? Exactly, right. These are called 10-day injunctions. And they're very important because they enable relief while litigation is pending. But they're not that common. The NLRB only pursues them in cases where they deem that the violations are significant and they have a strong case. And there's disagreement among the courts of appeals about what standards should apply to decide whether one of these injunctions should issue. And that's a legal question that the court appears poised to decide. So the approach used by the Sixth Circuit here is... Would you say a more lenient approach requires less of the NLRB? Probably. So the Sixth Circuit applies a two-part test, and that examines, first, whether a district court has reasonable cause to believe there was a labor violation, and second, whether an injunction would be just and proper. And it appears that that is slightly more lenient. So five circuits apply that test, and they are slightly more likely to grant injunctions. Four circuits apply a four-part test that's used in other cases involving injunctions, and those courts look at likelihood of success on the merit, chance of irreparable harm, balance of parties' interests, and whether an injunction is in the public interest. But the Solicitor General in this case, in opposing cert, took the position that I think is fairly well supported by evidence that, in fact, the two tests are pretty similar, and there's not that much difference in how they come out. Yeah, I saw that, and so I wondered why Starbucks and business interests are so set on challenging this standard. And Starbucks said it was seeking to level the playing field for all U.S. employers by ensuring that a single standard is applied. So Starbucks is saying that the circuits that use this two-part test are too lenient, and so they want one standard throughout the country. But I think what's also really going on here is that the business groups, including the Chamber of Commerce, which filed a brief in support of certiorari, are trying to get the court to send a signal to the lower courts and to the board 
that they should seek these injunction plus frequently and grant the injunction plus frequently. So I think what they're hoping for is a general tightening of these injunctions. You know, it's a little odd that the court granted the case. Technically, it meets certiorari standards because there is a split. But as the Solicitor General pointed out in opposition, it's not clear that the split matters that much. And it's not clear that this is actually a great vehicle for deciding the split because it's not clear that in this case it would have come out differently no matter what standard was applied. So the NLRB said that it sought the injunction 21 times in 2022, down from as many as 38 each year during the Obama administration. Is it because the current NLRB general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, says that her office is going to pursue these 10-J injunctions more aggressively? Well, I do think that the companies are concerned that these injunctions may be perceived more aggressively. I also think they're taking advantage of a conservative turn on the court. So they think they have the opportunity to further constrain workers' rights, more so than you know the court that existed previously. Would you call the Supreme Court the most business-friendly, anti-labor Supreme Court in modern history? Well, I guess it depends when modern history starts. <laughs> it certainly has real echoes with the court that existed before the New Deal that routinely struck down regulations protecting workers and consumers, and that also really tried to constrain government power to protect workers and consumers. So I think one thing that's particularly concerning is you know, the series of anti-union and anti-worker cases that the court has issued, but also more generally, its attack on government and on the administrative state. So in addition to this Starbucks case, the court has before it this year a number of cases that could really constrain labor board's power while it constrains all other agencies' powers as well. So that's why I'm wondering, any hope that they would rule against Starbucks here? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly possible, right? I mean, each case is considered on its own merits. I think there are good arguments in favor of of the standard that the Sixth Circuit used. It's never a good practice to predict what the court would do. I mean, it's more likely the way in favor of Starbucks, but you never know with a given case. But it certainly is a very strong pattern by this court in favor of big business and against workers. And are these injunctions considered a key tool for the NLRB, in part because of the length of time it takes for claims to go through NLRB review? Well, it certainly does take a very long time for these cases to be resolved. First, the board has to decide them, and then they typically get appealed through multiple levels of appeal. But that's exactly why these injunctions are so important, because if workers get fired for organizing unions, and then they are not reinstated under injunctions, even when the evidence is overwhelming. What that means is that they are out of work or they're out of work at that particular facility for many, many, many years until the case is resolved. And once the case is resolved, the only remedies that are available to them are reinstatement minus back pay earned in the meantime. So there's really no disincentive for employers to violate the law. And so I think that in order for the statute to be vindicated, these injunctions need to be available. Is the real concern for businesses the costs associated with having unionized workers? Well, unions certainly mean that profits within the company are distributed more fairly so that workers get a fair share of the profits that the company is producing. I think there's lots of unionized companies within the United States that have learned to deal cooperatively with unions and that have really productive working relationships and that continue to prosper. But I think what Starbucks is most worried about is giving up control of any sort and having to share power with its workers. So I don't think it's just about the money, but also about the extent to which workers will have a voice in working conditions as well as increased wages and benefits. How would you characterize these times for unions 
I mean, we've seen organized labor demonstrate its power last year through the UAW strike and the Hollywood writers and directors strike. Well, certainly there's widespread interest in unionization in the United States. So we see both uptick in organizing efforts, an increase in strikes, and polls that show that over 70% of workers would like to have a union. I think the big question is, is that energy going to translate into an increase in union density and a growth in unions? And there's a major challenge with achieving that increase, and that is that U.S. labor law doesn't effectively protect the workers' ability to organize unions. So you have all these Starbucks workers that have won elections across the country, and yet not a single one has yet reached a first contract. That's in part because the law doesn't effectively force the employer to negotiate a contract or to reach a settlement or to obey the law. Would you explain that further? Because I thought that our labor laws were pretty robust. So the law is very strong in the sense that it provides workers a right to organize unions, a right to negotiate contracts, and a right to strike. But in practice, the enforcement of those rights is really limited, and the penalties are very weak for violations of the law. So after workers win a union election, the obligation is on the employer to bargain in good faith, but there's very little ability to force that to happen. And so you have employers that bargain in good faith. We just saw that happen with the auto workers. We saw that happen with the Hollywood workers, where the workers and the employers did reach good contracts. But a lot of times when workers organize a union for the first time, employers either refuse to bargain or really drag their feet and aren't willing to reach first contracts. Thanks for those insights on unions, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. In other Supreme Court news this week, by a closely divided vote, the justices delivered a huge win to the Biden administration in its escalating battle with Texas over the southern border. In a 5-4 to four vote, the court ruled that U.S. Border Patrol agents can resume cutting the razor wire that Texas has installed along a 26-mile stretch of the U.S.-Mexico border. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett join with the three liberal justices in making the emergency order. Joining me is immigration law expert Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Are you surprised that the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration here? Well, it's not surprising from a purely legal perspective, which is that at the end of the day, it would have been very tough to say that a state can actually erect a razor wire fencing barrier along the Mexico border that the Border Patrol would be able to access only in the highest of emergencies. So from that standpoint, that is not surprising. But it's interesting that it was a 5-4 decision and that if simply Justice Amy Coney Barrett had switched to the other side, then this injunction would have remained in place and Texas basically could have walled off a 29-mile wire square there along the Rio Grande River that the federal government wouldn't have been able to go in. So that means that four justices thought that Texas should have the authority to do this, or could it be that four justices thought the government didn't make out a strong enough case? I mean, we don't know because it's just an order. Right. The decision is just an order which says that the injunction that Texas had sought in the Fifth Circuit to prevent the federal government from coming in and cutting down the wire, that injunction was vacated. And we know that Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh would have kept that injunction in place. Now, if you're going to keep an injunction in place, you're technically saying that you believe that that injunction was rightfully issued. Otherwise, you have some duty to 
vacate that injunction. And so from that standpoint, I do think it's fair to say that those four justices thought that because the fence was built on private land, that the federal government wouldn't have any authority to be able to cut down that wire fencing. But that's a very hard argument to make. I mean, if the intent of the fence is to control the border, then that's the jurisdiction of the Border Patrol. You can't have it both ways. Thanks, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. Coming up next, Alec Baldwin is staring down involuntary manslaughter charges again. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The gun was supposed to be empty. I was told I was handed an empty gun. If there were cosmetic rounds, nothing with a charge at all, a flash round, nothing. But it turned out that the gun handed to Alec Baldwin on the set of the movie Rust back in October of 2021 had a live bullet inside, and cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed when it went off accidentally. At the time of the shooting, Santa Fe County Sheriff Adan Mendoza said there was one key question. How the live rounds ended up on set? who brought them to the set, and why they were on the set. I think that's the key question that our investigators are focusing on right now. Yet more than two years later, that question remains unanswered, and Baldwin is once again facing trial for felony involuntary manslaughter after a grand jury indicted him last Friday. The actor has steadfastly maintained that he never actually pulled the trigger, that he pulled back the gun's hammer, and the gun went off. As he told ABC's George Stephanopoulos a few months after the accident. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. Prosecutors had dropped their initial charges against Baldwin last April, but a recent forensic analysis determined that the gun could not have fired unless the trigger was pulled opening the way for prosecutors to reboot the case. 
Joining me is Joshua Kastenberg, a criminal law professor at the University of New Mexico Law School and a former prosecutor. The handling of this case by prosecutors has been very confusing. They dropped the case back in April. Why are they bringing it again? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, when the defenses were raised by the other defendant in the case, some of those defenses that were raised pointed in the direction of Mr. Baldwin. In other words, it's not fully my fault. It's also his. He didn't listen to me, that sort of thing. The other thing is that the prosecutors are stuck with this evidence. That's pretty compelling evidence, if you believe it. And what I mean is the FBI crime lab, when they investigated the firearm, concluded that the gun could not have gone off on its own, that the trigger had to be depressed by a human finger. And I think once that evidence is there and known to the public in New Mexico, the question then is, well, why isn't this going to trial? Particularly if Mr. Baldwin, who may be absolutely sincere in his memory, is saying, I didn't press the trigger, the gun went off on its own. And the FBI experts, or the platinum standard of crime labs, are responding with, that's impossible. You're stuck with this. Where is the truth? And I think that's what compels the prosecutors to go forward. Now, there were mistakes made, particularly in charging a crime that couldn't have been charged because of the date of the crime coming into existence. So you're absolutely right that the prosecution has been a bit confused, to say the least. Suppose Alec Baldwin did pull the trigger. He maintains that he pulled back the gun's hammer, but he did not pull the trigger, and the gun just went off. Why does that matter so much? Because when he was handed the gun, he was told that there were no live bullets in it, and there's not supposed to be live ammunition on the set. So why does it matter if he actually did pull the trigger? You know, that's a great question. This is going to get into a nuanced argument that the prosecutor is going to make. And the nuanced argument the prosecutor is going to make is, Everybody who handles a gun has a basic duty of gun safety. And he had a duty to ensure the gun was unloaded or it was unsafe or inoperable before he put it in his hand. And the proof that he didn't do that is that he consciously pulled the trigger. I mean, that's going to be the prosecutor's argument. Whether it flies with the jury or not, I can't say. On the other hand, if what we have is a hair-trigger gun that the moment someone put their palm, you know, on the gun stock and the gun goes off, or it goes off simply because it's been cocked, Baldwin has a much better argument to say, I was exercising gun safety because I never put my finger on the trigger and pulled. So that is a critical piece of evidence that the prosecutor is going to do their utmost to, to try to bring out and prove guilt. The new charges rest on two theories of involuntary manslaughter, that Baldwin either caused the death as an involuntary manslaughter by negligent use of a firearm or as an involuntary manslaughter without due caution or circumspection. So what's necessary to prove those charges? So the first one goes to what we were just talking about. In order for the prosecution to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, they have to prove that Baldwin depressed the trigger without exercising appropriate gun safety. And that lack of exercise of appropriate gun safety rises to a criminal negligence, you know, arena. So it's kind of recklessness. 
the second charge is that while Baldwin was engaged in a ordinarily lawful activity, he didn't exercise enough caution in a general sense, and that lack of exercise of enough caution resulted in the death of another. Now, put it a different way. Suppose you have a license to use um, fireworks on the 4th of July, and therefore your ignition of fireworks is lawful under state law. But you don't look around before you fire off rockets to see if there are children in the street or motorists driving. And a firework hits and kills a kid. You didn't do anything illegal per se, but your lack of safety, you know, your lack of overall caution for the general public makes that act rise to a crime. So those are the two theories. He can only be convicted of one if he's convicted of any. One of the things the jury might do is get confused between the two. And if they split between the two, then he's acquitted because you have to have a unanimous jury that agrees with one theory and one theory only. Will he be tried in his role as an actor as well as his role as a co-producer? Well, he's going to be tried as Alec Baldwin. And what that's going to entail is the prosecutor putting on evidence that he had a duty to even do, you know, perhaps had a duty to do firearms training. And I know that there's been some talk that he missed that course. And, you know, I think the prosecutor is going to try to avoid those titles to the extent they can, because I could see his very, very exceptional defense team trying to bring in evidence, like this is the role of a producer and this is the role of an actor and this is why Mr. Baldwin did not have to attend that firearms training because he was acting in the role of an assistant producer, not an actor, or vice versa. I think the prosecutor is going to try to avoid all of that. I ask that because as a producer, there have been allegations that the set was not safe. You know, the safety right. on the set was neglected. Rust Movie Productions, the company behind the film, paid a $100,000 fine to state workplace safety regulators after a report into safety failures included testimony that managers took limited or no action after there were two earlier gun misfires on set. And the Santa Fe County Sheriff said that 500 rounds of ammunition were found, a mix of blank dummy rounds and suspected live rounds, which are not supposed to be on the set. So in his role as a producer, it seems like, you know, that's right in his bailiwick. Well, it would seem to be that way. You know, you've got a very strong legal background, and there are rules of evidence, and I could see the defense team trying to suppress the fine, the investigation, to say that, Look, you know, Alec Baldwin has a role on the Rust movie set, but he is not responsible for the overall safety of the set in his role as an actor. That goes back to my comment that I think the prosecution will want to get that evidence in, but say it doesn't matter what his role was, but do its best to sort of water down titles and just say everybody's responsible. I think the defense is going to try to argue he's an actor, nothing more. It still hasn't been conclusively determined how live ammunition got on the set. Now, the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is set to go on trial on February 22nd, but her attorneys say she has no idea where the live rounds came from. How important is that missing piece of the picture? Well, it would be helpful to both sides, I suppose, to know where they came from as long as Mr. Baldwin wasn't the source of them, which I doubt that he was. <laughs> he certainly hasn't been accused of that. Yeah, that's a difficult question. And, 
it actually might favor the defense because if the defense is able to cast significant doubt on where those bullets came from, you know, maybe the shipper, for example, maybe a manufacturer, maybe somewhere back in Hollywood, you know, who knows? But it might make it palatable more to the defense to be able to argue, how was Baldwin supposed to know there were any live rounds? I'm not saying it's a strong selling point to a jury, but it, it could possibly be. Will Baldwin's attorneys learn a lot from the Gutierrez Reed trial, how the prosecution is presenting its case, how witnesses testify and the like? Absolutely. But they'll also learn not just how the prosecution works in a preview of the prosecution's case, but they'll also learn whether Hannah Gutierrez will end up being a witness for the prosecution against Baldwin or whether what she has to say would absolve Baldwin if she testifies and they may call her as a witness. So if she's acquitted in this trial and there's a possibility that she would be acquitted, depending on how the trial goes, she could end up being a witness for one side or the other. But I think they'll learn a lot. And I think that at least one of them will be sitting through the trial. One thing that will differ in Baldwin's trial is the celebrity factor. Juries love celebrities, as we've seen over and over again. They certainly do. I mean, the Beretta case resulted in an acquittal, and and star power is everything. I go back to the Jimmy Hoffa trial in Washington, D.C. so many years ago, and, you know, in the middle of Hoffa's trial in front of the jury, no less than Jesse Owens came up to him and shook his hand. (sighs) Look, that kind of thing plays into the minds of the jurors. If Jesse Owens, if other athletes think Jimmy Hoffa's a good guy, then, you know, in the psychology of the jury, Jimmy Hoffa couldn't have done the terrible things that Robert Kennedy and the Justice Department accused him of doing. And it it resulted in an acquittal. And that's an example of star power. Of course, a defendant does not have to testify in his own defense. But in this case, does it seem like Baldwin will testify for a number of different reasons? Yeah. I always tell my students, if you're a prosecutor, one of the first things you do when you're prepping a case is to pretend that the defendant is going to testify, knowing that in about 95% of all criminal trials, the defendant does not. But you have to prep that way. Having said that, in this case, I would say it's a 50-50 chance he testifies. And the reason is he's already made a statement that he didn't depress the trigger. And I think if he holds true to that and he testifies, it works to his favor. You know, one reason why defendants don't testify is there are things that the judge has already suppressed that are damaging to the particular defendant. I don't think there's anything damaging to Baldwin that he would have to be afraid of on cross-examination. And if you look at that calculus, then why wouldn't he testify? Exactly. And also, he's very articulate. Another thing in his favor. Thanks so much for joining me, Josh. That's Professor Joshua Kastenberg of the University of New Mexico School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing and listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from iHeart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. 
This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.